this morning we're opening up a new sermon series. And it's a sermon series that I personally have a particular excitement for because we're for the first time since we planted our church going through a gospel account in the New Testament. In our first year as a church, we went through the Gospel of John, and it took us about 10 months to get through. This morning, we begin a nine-month or so journey through the Gospel of Mark. And if you've never read one of the Gospel accounts, that's perfectly fine. In fact, if you haven't read the Bible in a while or have never read it at all, you're in good company this morning. We're all learning. The Gospels introduce us to the person who is Jesus, who is the Christ. And whether you're being introduced to him for the first time or being reintroduced, we all need to behold him afresh. So even if you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, we have extras under the chairs in the center aisle. Or you can just pull up your phone's app and search Mark 1. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Esta mañana... Uh, vamos a leer el Evangelio según Marcos, el capítulo 1, versículos 1 a 8. This morning we'll be in verses 1 through 8. We're starting this book off. This is the prologue to the book. Now, if you're not familiar or if you need a refresher, the book of Mark is one of four gospels in the Bible, four accounts of a man named Jesus from a town called Galilee. Three of these Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. And that's, they're called that because they're, they're each a similar synopsis of, of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of that same Jesus. But each of these three authors has a different audience and a different priority and a different specific purpose for for each of those audiences. And so Mark is unique in many ways. It's why I'm really excited to, to jump into Mark. It's not just another one of the four gospel accounts where we're just going to go through the exact same material and content. No. Mark is unique. It was the first gospel to be written. So likely, Matthew and Luke uh, used Mark as their source material or as one of their sources in writing their own gospel accounts. So Mark is, is sort of the original gospel account. Secondly, Mark is writing to primarily a Gentile Roman audience. His audience isn't primarily, though they would read it, it isn't primarily a Jewish audience. So his audience is sort of us. We're Gentiles. We're not from a Jewish heritage. But, but what is perhaps most unique about Mark, and you'll notice this when you read through it, and I would encourage that you read through it a few times, even over the next couple months, but what you will notice is that when you read through it, it's action-oriented. Forty-one times in this book, Mark will either transition from scene to scene or begin a passage with the word immediately. And you see it over and over. You, you can't miss it. He goes, immediately they went here, and immediately they left that place, and immediately, even when there is a passage of time in between accounts, he says immediately, as if to say, I'm not going to include any details I don't need to include because I have a purpose. I have a mission to accomplish in my telling of the story 
of Jesus. Mark, Mark conveys progress, forward movement. And that progress is centered on Jesus. And the word progress is important here because Mark progressively reveals Jesus. As commentator James Edwards says, Mark is a brief confession of faith. A masterful account of the historical realities that Christians have staked their faith on for centuries, but the meaning of which will unfold only as the reader follows Mark's presentation of Jesus. So so as a reader, we're seeing the reality of Jesus unfold before our eyes, and that's what Mark wants to do. But, but listen, this is a book in which all other humans in this story also see Jesus revealed before their eyes. They all have some idea of who he is. Some notion, some conception. But he's revealed slowly over time. And as that happens, those people and us, the readers, we come to realize precisely who this Jesus is. And the word progress is also important because Mark is progressing his revelation towards something. Jesus is, is his ministry is, is literally, even geographically, Moving, progressing towards something, and that's something we will, which we will learn. I don't need to, to save this and, and, and remain veiled in this. What he's moving toward is the cross. And it is on that cross where the progressive revelation of Jesus is most fully unveiled, where we see truly who he is. So buckle up. Today we begin. Today we read Mark's prologue, verses 1 through 8. So with that, would you read along with me in the book of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the privilege and the honor of encountering Jesus through your word. Thank you for for inspiring Mark through your Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago to write this account. That we might learn who Jesus is, what he has done, and be changed by it. Lord, teach us this story. And remind us where our story comes from. Lord, would we behold Jesus in a fresh way this morning and every Sunday from here on out? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Think back to the last book that that you read. It probably had a prologue. And if you are the kind of person who skips the prologue, and I know there are some of you in this room who skip prologues, I highly recommend that you do not skip prologues because the prologue is important. The prologue sort of summarizes what's coming in the book and tells you how you should approach what's coming in the book. Actually, prologues help you to read books correctly in the way the author intended for you to read them. And that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Mark. And and, and he tells us in in verse 1, talk about summarizing what's coming. In verse 1, I've just told you that that Mark is going to progressively reveal who Jesus is, but in verse 1, he lets the whole cat out of the bag and and he gives a complete title for who Jesus is, who we, ex- who we should expect him to be revealed to be. And he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It, re- it refers to the fact that he is the Messiah. The the long-awaited, long-prophesied, anointed one of God that Israel has been waiting for for centuries. Mark says, this is the gospel, the account of Jesus, the Christ. But he goes further, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Quite a title. A title nobody in history never born before that, and nobody has since. A title that doesn't convey someone who has been born of God and who suddenly sprang into existence, but talking about the third person of the Trinity, of the triune God, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son right here. Mark is saying this is the account of him. And then, (laughs) immediately, he introduces John the Baptist. Wastes no time who comes into the wilderness proclaiming a a baptism of repentance. And then in verses 7 and 8, look all the way down to 7 and 8, proclaiming the coming of this one who's introduced in verse 1, whose sandals he's not worthy to untie and who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So in short, John came proclaiming the coming Jesus. He came proclaiming who he is and what he was coming to do. So so Mark's burden and John the Baptist's burden are the same. They share the burden of asking and answering this one question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's a question that every single other human in this book is asking. Who is 
Jesus. It's the question that the disciples in Mark 4.41, sitting in a boat, having seen Jesus calm the storm and the waves, the man that they had already known to some degree, they'd spent months every day close by his side, yet they saw him calm the storm, and with stunned reverence they asked, Who then is this? said, Who then? Based on what we just saw, what does that mean, who this really is? As if to say, could he really be who we hardly dared to think he might be? Who then is this? And slowly, as everybody realizes what the answer to the question is, they realize it's the most important question that they've ever asked in their entire life. And verse 1 tells the humans reading this book, you and me, that it's the most important question you've ever asked. Friends, this is what Mark is about. It's about answering the most important question, who is Jesus? And, and, and while that may seem obvious to you, right? Of course, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, that's the purpose. Let me go one step further. That question is the most important question in every single passage. Of Mark, and it's the most important question at every single moment of your life. Because of who Jesus is revealed to be, our first question should always be, what is Jesus? In whatever we're encountering, we tend to, to ask all kinds of different questions. What should I do? Where should I go? Which one should I choose? How should I do this? How can I do this? Where am I going to go? How are we going to survive? How? What? Who? Where? When? When the first question we should ask every moment of our life, who is Jesus? Let me illustrate. During my sabbatical, I was asking questions like, what, what kind of a church have we become after five years? How has God positioned us to take the joy of Jesus to our neighbors in 2022 and beyond? What do we need to subtract or to add from, from our, our weekly and monthly and annual calendar and rhythms? How can Jeff and I as pastors better shepherd the church we've become? All good questions. All I would, I would even say necessary questions. But when I start with who is Jesus... Each of those questions are answered very differently than if that question is not taken into account. Very different. Another situation. I was recently counseling someone. She was struggling with making a major life decision. What should I do? What if this happens? How can I know the right choice? How much should I listen to my feelings? What if my feelings are conflicting and changing? And I looked her in the eyes, and I said, who is Jesus? When all your other questions filter through that question, it profoundly changes the direction and the clarity of your decision. Another situation, a good friend of mine was speaking to one of his friends who was a non-Christian, and they were discussing their perspectives on religion 
and what they believed. And his non-Christian friend just couldn't get on board with Christianity. And he said, well, what about the flood? You really think that was real? How can you really take into account millions of animals on this boat? What about, how, how can you really bring yourself to, to believe in and stake your life on this thousands of year old book? Is something like re- resurrection really possible? It, it, eternal life seems like a, a, a human security blanket to make us feel comfortable. What do you think about that? Because I don't buy it. And my friend looked at him and he said, what do you believe Jesus is? And he said, with all due respect, those questions aren't important unless we answer that question. Because we simply cannot arrive at the same answers to all those other questions unless we arrive at the same answer to that question. Or one more situation. A family who's been very dear to us over over the past decade or so They lost their firstborn son shortly after birth, about a day after he was born. And as grief just unraveled in their hearts, the questions came brutal and quick. How can we live with this? Why did God do this? Why weren't we given more time to spend with our son? Will he go to heaven? This sweet couple resolved to keep one question at the forefront of their minds. And I remember this so distinctly. That question was, who is Jesus? And we watched them walk through those dark days with a calmness and a peace and a care for others that we wouldn't have thought possible prior to watching them walk through that situation. We watched them care for the nurses and the doctors of their own deceased son and witness to their nurses the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because for them, who is Jesus, was their first question. And it changed the most difficult moment of their entire life. The most important question for every human in the book of Mark is your most important question in every scenario of your life. And not just to be saved. I'm not just saying it's the most important question for you to be saved, which is how we commonly think of that question. No, I'm talking about every moment. And we're going to spend about nine months in this book learning how to apply that lesson to our own lives, and I can't wait to learn that with you. But for this morning, we look to John the Baptist, who, as I mentioned, came proclaiming one greater than he. In verse 7, he proclaimed who Jesus is, and in verse 8, he proclaimed what Jesus had come to do. So he gives us two questions to ask, and I want to take his two questions and use them to give us a framework for how to read the rest of the book. This is a true prologue, a summary, and then telling you how to read the book. And I, I suspect if there were two headings within Mark's prologue telling us how to approach his gospel, I would suspect they would be, one, ask who is Jesus versus where am I in this story? Ask who is Jesus versus where am I in this story? Secondly, the second heading I believe that Mark would 
place in this prologue for, for how to approach this book is ask, what has Jesus done? Versus, what should I do? You see, where am I in this story and what should I do? Are, are, I would probably guess the two most common questions we use to approach our Bibles. Looking at our Bibles and saying, I want to look at this to tell me what I should do. I want to look at this and, and see how my story maps onto the stories that I'm reading here in the Bible so I can find a, 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 an illustration for, for my life. No, Mark says, and John the Baptist says, hmm, there are two other questions you need to ask before you ask them. So let's jump into that first heading. Those are going to be our two points this morning. The first heading of the prologue being, ask who is Jesus and not where am I in this story. So after introducing Jesus' titles, Mark quotes three different Old Testament passages, and he attributes them all to Isaiah, Isaiah sort of being the most significant of the three Old Testament prophets. But these three Old Testament passages, they foretold of one who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. Literally, the one who would come to prepare the way for God to come. These prophecies, look at verse 4, they're fulfilled by John the Baptist. Again, Mark is moving quick. He's not, he's not given any, any unnecessary explanation. He says, these are the, prof- the prophecies, John appeared. And you may think that his description in verse uh, in verse 6 is meant to convey that he looked like a wild man or that he was kind of crazy, but no, don't get tripped up by that. Mark isn't saying that, that, that John was sort of this countercultural weird guy living out there with, with, with uh, garments of camel's hair, leather belt, and eating locusts and, and honey. No, he was reflecting. He was reflecting another prophet who we see described in 1 Kings 1.8 as wearing the exact same thing and, and, and exhibiting this exact same behavior. And this prophet's name was Elijah. And Elijah, curiously, was sent by God to prepare the people of Israel for the renewal of the covenant at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. Or in other words, to prepare the people to, re- to receive God's grace. So in the period of the prophet's God's people continue straight, continually strayed away from him. The prophets would come and say, repent. Prepare to receive God's grace by repenting. And then God would graciously restore them to himself. But in such a way that they still realized that there was more they needed to be fully reconciled to God. Now, John comes, and just like Elijah, He comes proclaiming a baptism of what? Of repentance. So he's saying to the people of Israel, and and people, commoners are coming out from from Judea, and even the the religious elite from Jerusalem, from from the temple area, and he's telling them all, repent. Prepare for the grace of God to come. So the the Israelites are used to this this pattern. They, They know this historically. It's been like 400 years of this pattern. Prepare to receive God's grace. But John makes it clear 
what they're preparing for is something completely new. They're preparing for a person. A person so great, John, who who Jesus says is the greatest man who ever lived, apart from himself, John says he isn't even worthy to, to untie his sandals, which is something that you do to take sandals off to wash feet, which is a task reserved only for whom? For slaves in that period. So John says, prepare for one so great I, a prophet called by God, am not even worthy to be his slave. Pay very close attention to who he is, is what John is saying. There's never been anyone like him. So when you read Mark, don't ask, where am I? Are you familiar with this tendency in yourself? It's the tendency to approach any given passage of the Bible and try to find myself. It's, it's looking at the account of the, the crossing of the Red Sea and going, okay, which characters am I in that so I can determine how I'm supposed to respond in a similar situation should I be crossing any seas? Or, or looking at the account of, of Jericho and, and seeing the Israelites marching around Jericho and, and trying to see yourself in the Israelites and, and seeing that as an illustration of, of how you should conquer the the things that oppose you in your life by, by faith and hoping that, that walls will just come crashing down. We tend to read the Bible that way. But, but, that's not a Mark would have us read his gospel. And frankly, I would submit that the question, who is Jesus? It is the primary question we should be asking of the whole Bible itself because the Old Testament itself points forward to Jesus, to the hope of the coming Messiah. Now, you see, for, for Matthew, the, the gospel is an account. Matthew opens up in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But for Mark, this is a story. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel, in Greek, the word is euangelion. It means good news. It's the same word used to describe when soldiers would bring news of victory in battle back to the king or to the general. The story of the battle. The good news. Your story, the reason I mention this, it's because your story is subsumed into Jesus' story. That's why we don't first ask, where am I in this story? More often than not, we use Jesus' story as an occasional tool to try to improve our story. But who Jesus is and what he has done defines our very identity as Christians. As Jeremy Treat says, the kingdom takes the shape of its king. We've just come out of the, the series in, in 1 Samuel, talking about the king who is. Jesus is that king that, that 1 Samuel points forward to completely. And the kind of king he is shapes the kingdom that he rules and oversees. The story that is written through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection is the story that determines your story, your story exists and is written and has its shape 
only within the existence of Jesus' story. So to approach a moment of our Christian lives without the awareness of who he is and what he has done is to begin to write a different story. So it's not that we need to see how his story fits into our story. His story is not a servant for our story. No. Our story proceeds from his story. Our story is only known when his story is known. Who is Jesus is the first question we need to bring to every passage and every situation in our life. It's the most important question. Now, before we move on to the second and final point, let me address an important point. And this is very important. If you're taking notes, I would pick up your pen right now. Are we excluding the Father and the Spirit by prioritizing the question, who is Jesus? And even making the audacious claim that that's the question that we should ask of the whole Bible. Right? It, it seems like that, that, that question glares and is begged to be asked. Well, first, you'll find that, that Mark doesn't exclude the Father or the Spirit at all. In fact, you see the ministry of the Father sending Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus according to Jesus' humanity constantly throughout the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we'll see both members of the Trinity outside of the Son next week in both Jesus' baptism and his wilderness experience. And very significantly, Mark's presentation of Jesus is a thoroughly Trinitarian presentation. But the reason the reason he prioritizes the identity of Jesus is because, and this is critical, Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, in his gospel, he says that in Jesus, the Word, what God has said about himself, is made flesh in Jesus. Jesus is how we know who God is and what he's like. But in an even deeper way, Jesus is how we know God. Not just how we know about God, but how we come to know God as our God, as our Savior, as our Father, as our friend. How we can have any hope of having a relationship with him. Jesus is how we, can how we can be reconciled to him. He is the way by which the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. So by knowing Jesus, God the Son, we come to know God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's why Mark prioritizes the question of who Jesus is. Because without answering who is Jesus, we have no hope of knowing God in any way. And just how Jesus brings us to know God in relationship, speaks to what he came to do. And this is where it gets really exciting. Brings us to the second point. So if there were a second uh, uh, 
section of Mark's prologue telling you how you should approach his gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be, ask what Jesus has done versus what should I do? Before asking what should I do, ask what has Jesus done? Look down at verse 8 with me. John the Baptist said, I have baptized you with water, which was a ritual cleansing, not the same as modern baptism, and we'll get into that much more deeply next week. We'll be immersed into that. Okay, anyway. Uh, (laughs) John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Says the one greater than him has come to do something, and that's to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the in the Old Testament, listen, in the Old Testament, the bestowal of the Holy Spirit is a prerogative that belongs only to God. Only God can bestow the Holy Spirit onto someone. This is a declaration that Jesus will come with the power and the prerogative of God. But just as significantly, through this. John is declaring that the promises of God will be fulfilled through this one. In multiple Old Testament prophecies, and write these down if you're taking notes. You can go back to them and look at them separately. But the prophets foretell of a coming day when he will pour out his Holy Spirit on all people. This is a significant theme of the prophecies of the coming new covenant. In Joel 2.29, which is, which is probably the foremost of all those promising the coming of the Holy Spirit on all peoples. Isaiah 32, 15. In Ezekiel 39, 29. And in Zechariah 12, 10. The fulfillment of the promise of God sending His Holy Spirit into his people is a sign of God's new covenant. It's a sign of his salvation. John was signaling, John the Baptist was signaling that the age of salvation through the promised Messiah had come. That the age of the fulfillment of God's promises had come. The promise of the Holy Spirit speaks to the work that Jesus will do. That is what John the Baptist is speaking to. Let me ask you this. Do you know what Jesus came to do? Do you know why what he came to do is significant to every moment or situation in your life? And you might answer yes. I would answer yes. But I would be careful about answering that too self-confident. Because the Jews would have heard what John said in verse 8. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and they would have said, oh, I know all about the Messiah. I've read my prophets. I read my Torah. I know what's coming. And I know what the effect will be. In other words, they responded, oh yeah, I already know who he is and, 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 and what he's come to do. I got it. And you actually see that in the, Gospels, in the Gospel accounts. The, the Jews, they have this preconceived notion about who the Messiah is and what he will do. But they're all wrong. Nobody expected it. And if you're a Christian, you likely have the same tendency to to say, I already know who Jesus is. I know what he did. Now, if you're not a Christian, get ready. Come back next week and the next and the next and the next 
learning and believing in who he is and what he has done will literally change your eternity. It will certainly change your life before death. But if you are a Christian, and if you've ever read the book of Mark, do you assume that you already know the answer to these all-important questions, and this sermon seems like something that you can just sort of bypass until we get to next week? Think of a song with a catchy chorus on the radio, and I'll confess, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good uh, pop hook. I hear a, a good pop hook on the radio, and, I, and I, I'll listen to it over and over and over. And, and the, the, the chorus is usually something that's super repetitive, really easy to, to memorize, right? You hear it a couple times, and you feel like you've got that chorus stuck in your brain. But what happens when you listen to a bunch of other songs? Or when you go a long time before hearing that song again, you may know that song, but you don't know the whole song. And the quality of knowing it exists on a spectrum, doesn't it? We forget who Jesus is and what he has done. Other tunes distract us, and and, and we forget the lyrics of the gospel. We become familiar with it, and at times, because of our familiarity with it, we make up our own lyrics to the gospel. Or we simplify the lyrics down to something that that dilutes the majesty of what, what Jesus has done. And we reduce it down to something that is just pedestrian and seemingly ordinary. We need to pay close attention to Mark, even if we've read it a hundred times. Because what Jesus came to do was something nobody in the story of Mark expected. And it's something nobody in this room should ever cease to be amazed. Because Jesus came to usher in the age of salvation through a cross. Mark's story is a story of good news. And the good news is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the long-awaited King. But what is crazy is that it's revealed that, that this Messiah is the suffering servant. What is unexpected is that this King is a crucified King. Jesus progresses in the book of Mark stunningly toward the sacrifice of his own life in the place of those he came to save. Does not raise a single finger against the Romans who oppressed the Jews. He does not physically beat anybody. He does not physically conquer anybody. Instead, he, he seemingly becomes conquered by allowing himself to be crucified as a criminal in order to take on the sins of all who would believe in him. Making the way, paving the way for the first time and only time and once for all in history man to be reconciled to God in a way that when repentance prepares the way to receive God's grace, that reception of God's grace through Jesus, 
through his work on the cross, is finished, is complete. Never needing to be received again. He surrendered himself in order to conquer. He was enthroned upon a cross. He suffered in order to reign. Jeremy Treat says that Mark is all about demonstrating, subtly yet powerfully, that the cross is not a stumbling stone to the kingdom of God as the Jews supposed it was. It is its cornerstone. The cross is the throne from which the king of the world rules with grace. Jesus is king on the cross, not king despite the cross. And what he accomplished on the cross created the story of your Christian life. What he accomplished on the cross sustains moment by moment the story of your Christian life. What he accomplished on the cross defines your future. What he has done through the cross gives you the right and the ability and the sufficient motivation to live in his kingdom and have a relationship with God the Father and live according to his ways. Which means that the question, what should I do, cannot be answered apart from what has he done? That's why. What should I do is perhaps the most common question that we ask of our Bibles and of our lives. But unless we first ask, what has Jesus done? We will be led hopelessly astray. Friends, Prepare yourselves to learn how wonderful it is to start with who is Jesus and what has he done. I want you to think back on the illustrations that I, that I gave at first at the beginning of this message. I want to answer in those, in those four scenarios why, who is Jesus, and what has he done is the most important questions. As it relates to, to our church and the, the questions I was asking during the, the sabbatical, the reason that, that the question of who is Jesus and what has he done is the most important question is because as we will learn from Mark, through his death and resurrection, Jesus himself gave rise to the church. He authored the church and set himself as head of the church. Further, he cemented our mission in his mission and ensured that it flowed out of his mission to seek and save the lost, Mark, Mark 10.45. In the case of the person that I was counseling, who couldn't decide on, on a major decision for her future, why is, who is Jesus the most important question? Because as we will learn from Mark, he died to conquer any evil purpose arrayed against you. Because of his death, God will always be for your good completely and wholly. Those situations and scenarios might seem to be difficult and painful. The cross ensures that God is fully for your good. His disposition toward you is nothing but grace. So whatever comes in the future, it can be nothing but for your good. So there is no tremendous danger in making one decision or the other unless the decision 
is a sinful one proving to be against God's will objectively, which is revealed in Scripture. There's freedom to make that decision. He's the Savior not only of present you, but future you. He's the rescuer of your life from here to eternity. To make decisions in faith and confidence. My friend who was sharing the gospel with his non-Christian friend, who is Jesus is the most important question because as we will learn from Mark, he is God. He's God. He created the universe and the world and you and me. He declared the beginning from the end. He defined what is true. He defined what is right and what is wrong. He's the only standard of moral goodness come in human flesh. And if that is who he is, all other opposition falls flat and all all other questions have to filter through the grid of his identity. They have to. Our friends who lost their son, the reason why their understanding of who Jesus is was a solid rock for them to cling to was because, as we will learn from Mark, he's the author of life and the conqueror of death. And he is good. He is good. He's holy and completely good. So they fixed their eyes on him and contented themselves with the fact that all their questions, all their other questions might not have an answer they could understand. But they were okay with that so long as Jesus remained Jesus. Their hearts could rest. So friends, before we close, let me give you one final point of application before we launch into the rest of this sermon series. John the Baptist and Mark are preparing us. Preparing us to meet Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. How do we prepare to encounter him? By doing what John proclaimed. By repenting. By repenting. Repenting means turning from sin and toward God. Turning away from wrong and sinful thoughts and attitudes and mindsets and behaviors and toward what pleases God. Thus preparing to receive His grace and preparing to to receive the work of His cross by faith. So repent of your tendency to make your story the main story. Repent of seeing Jesus' story as a servant to your story. If if this is the case with you, repent of your tendency to ask, what should I do before looking to Christ and finding sufficient motivation in Christ and sufficient freedom to answer the question, what should I do? Repent of your assumption that you already know Jesus and his story. That you don't need to learn anymore. Repent and prepare to meet him, to learn and rehearse and memorize the lyrics of the gospel. Learn who is Jesus and what he's done. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we, by your grace, 
yet to even presume to ask the question, who is Jesus? And have any modicum of confidence that we would be given an answer. Lord, it is only by your grace that you have revealed your living word to us. It's only by grace that you sent him to live among sinful humanity that we might, we might have an answer to who is God and what he is like. It's only by your grace that you sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for us to receive him. It's only by your grace, Lord, that we would receive forgiveness when we do position ourselves in repentance before you. So, Lord, would you forgive us through Christ, and would you fill our hearts with hopeful expectation at what you are going to do in us and through us and for us, for your glory, through the book of Mark. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.